Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It's March 1st, 2021. We're, we're getting beyond COVID, or it seems as if we're getting beyond COVID. Uh, more and more discussion now about the vaccine. Um, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about COVID in the US. Today, I want to talk about Germany, not so much COVID, but perhaps we might have a few words about COVID. The Germans in their linguistic fashion apparently have coined more than 1,200 words to talk about the coronavirus. Uh, and while last year things were pretty good on the COVID front in Germany in terms of dealing with the disease itself, uh, apparently the Germans haven't been doing so well on the vaccine front. Uh, Politico describes Germany's current COVID situation as a nightmare. And apparently Angela Merkel, the uh, the woman who's been running Germany now for many, many years, I can't remember a time when Merkel wasn't in control, is, fo is facing growing pressure to ease Germany's COVID curbs. Uh, Germany, though, according to my guest today, does it better. Uh, John Kampfner is a very distinguished British journalist, the author of this book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. Uh, John, I know when you, uh, when you uh, wrote the book, um, Germany was doing pretty well on the COVID front. Uh, if you were writing it today, uh, would, would it have the same title, Germany Does It Better? Well, it's interesting you ask that, and hi there, Andrew. Uh, I would. Um, I've updated the book just now, both for a new German edition and for a new English, English edition, the first of which comes out uh, second half of April and the English one comes out in June. And absolutely, I would be the first to admit that Germany and the EU more broadly have performed poorly. One could even say they've botched the early stages of the vaccines uh, in stark contrast to plucky little flag-waving small island Britain, um, which has um, transformed things from having had possibly the greatest example of how not to deal with the crisis. And I don't say that uh, with any kind of whimsy or joy, people's lives have been at stake and Boris Johnson has presided over more than 120,000 deaths. That's one of the highest per capita deaths, death tolls in the world. Our economic collapse in 2020 was the highest in the G7 and one of the highest in the OECD, so the largest basket of uh, wealthy countries. We have absolutely nothing to crow about. The vaccine decisions were fabulous. They were taken by some eminent scientists 
and rolled out brilliantly by the National Health Service, created in the late 1940s. And like a gambler, he chanced his arm on this. To give him his credit, he got it right. But it tells you absolutely nothing, sadly, about the state of Britain. And I don't feel in any way uh, in the need to change my view, which is of a country, Britain, that through Brexit and so many other things has become infantilized, uh, in contradistinction to a country like Germany that I do, for reasons that I'm sure we'll discuss, regard as in so many ways um, a more grown as, as having a more grown up political culture. Well, as I said, uh, why the Germans do it better notes from a grown up country. There is the self-evident subtext here. John Kampner is a British journalist talking to me from I think, John, you're in your your London uh, home, right? So uh, certainly implicit, at least in the title is uh, the subtitle, at least is is Britain and perhaps America isn't a grown up country. But rather than talking about Britain or America, let's talk about Germany, at least to kick off, uh, John. Uh, in your introduction, um, you say that uh, last month or a couple of months ago, Germany will be a hundred or Germany was 150 years old. First 75 years were catastrophic, but you argue that the second 75 years of German history were particularly distinguished. Uh, you, you, I'm quoting you here. The second half is a remarkable tale of atonement, stability, and maturity. No country has achieved so much in so little time. Dramatic words, John. Uh, what has Germany achieved over the last 75 years? It has achieved from the ruins of its own country, physical ruins and psychological ruins, the most extraordinary turnaround. You have to acknowledge that I mean, it's a counterfactual, but how much of this would have been achieved had it not been for the Marshall Plan and for the intervention of the Americans in particular and the Allies in general, who not just produced Germany's surrender, which Richard von Weizsäcker, one of Germany's great post-war presidents, the son of a very, very senior Nazi himself, described Germany's surrender, surrender as a great act of liberation, which it was. So from those, we've all seen those uh, post-1945 movie reels and films uh, of that era, the rubble women, the Trümmerfrauen, who were literally clearing the rubble, the two winters in, of near starvation and this extraordinary exodus of Germans kicked out of their eastern lands, now Poland and uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and being uh, having to start again in their own country. From that, uh, they emerged in a number of stages. The first stage was the economic miracle. Um, we know so much about that. And it wasn't just about creating world-leading German companies and their famous Mittelstand, their medium-sized, small and medium-sized companies in towns dotted around the country, producing manufacturing and engineering that pretty much took over the world. Um, they did that. That was the. Uh, the let, first... let me jump in. Took over the world. Is that that's a bit strong, John? Isn't it? What do you mean? Well, I mean, you, 
you look at that is probably a bit strong. You look at I mean Germany's economic performance was second to none. German goods manufacturing, if you looked at the first stage of China's opening up after Deng Xiaoping, everybody wanted German white goods, German cars, German engineering, um, that side of uh, German production has been extraordinary all the way through. But Germany's recovery was in stages. The first stage was economic recovery. The second stage, and I go through this in my book, I talk about 1949. Mm. Uh, I, I do this. want to get to these these four stages, actually. Mm. You, you have four dates that you pick out. But before we get to those dates, you always say, um, you, you write, um, uh, Germany, in comparison to an out of control, currently an out of control, or I guess Trump before, an out of control American president, powerful China, a vengeful Russia. Germany stands out as a bulwark for decency and stability. These two words, decency and stability, John, are those, if you were to pick out two words, do you think that those are the principal achievement of Germany over the last 75 years? stability and decency. There's a very sort of bourgeois ring to that, almost a, a small town German feel. Oh, that's probably correct. Uh, there is a German phrase, uh, which is langsam aber sicher, slow but steady. And that is both the positive and the negative about Germany. Germany is also quite slow. We've seen this on the vaccines. Uh, it takes a while for the wheels to to start moving for things to happen when they get there they invariably catch up and and quite often overtake they've been very slow on uh digitalization um at, at, at several steps they are slow in 1999 the economist called it called germany the sick man of europe every time particularly uh the brits and the americans and others crow about germany um Eventually, Germany gets there and quite often shows itself. Uh, I wouldn't say having the last laugh because Germans don't tend to laugh that much, and they don't <laughs> tend to regard and they don't tend to regard politics as a bit of a game, which I think we should come to because I regard that as absolutely vital in my assessment of things. So stability and sort of steady as she goes, absolutely. But if you're a country like Germany that has done so many terrible things in seventy five years, particularly, uh, in the dozen or so years of the Nazi era, you want stability. That is absolutely. You ask any German, what is it about your country you're most proud? Invariably, they'll say, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not at all. That's an awful thing to say. Uh, I'm never proud of my country. You know, that's you know, na patriotism equals nationalism equals a terrible thing. It's very hard to get Germans ever to say anything good about uh, their own country. But if you force them to, they will say that." On the decency, and that's a really interesting one. That is a more latter-day one. If you're going to go through the four stages that I outline in my, in mm, well, my we'll book, get to those next. We'll get to that too. So let's talk about these uh, uh, four key years. You say at the beginning of the book, 1949, 1968, 1989, and 2015. Now, of course, everyone knows what happened in 1989. Although we'll get to that. Not everyone will know what happened in. 1949, John. What's so critical about that date? So 1949 was the founding of the Federal Republic of Germany. With a so new... This is a West German, not an East German phenomenon. Yeah. So the Federal... 
Germany defeated uh, Russians invade from the east, the allies from the west. The Russians take the eastern part and the eastern part of Berlin. We, we know that story. The Russians create the German Democratic Republic, so-called East Germany, the communist state. Um, the Federal Republic, West Germany, uh, initially sort of in a sort of hybrid recovery form run by the allies for those four years with uh, Germans alongside them. Then the country is allowed to kick off again from scratch 1945 with its basic law, its temporary constitution, because it was not going to recognize um, mm. and the fact for those that people listening, we have uh, the Wikipedia page of the basic law of the Federal Republic of Germany up in a very uh, West German understated way. What is this basic law, John? It's a constitution and it's a, a less grandiloquent version of the codified American constitution. And it was drawn up with the aid of, which is one of the great ironies, the aid of American and British constitutionists and lawyers. And I say to my German friends, God, if only we could have done something for ourselves instead of this make up, make it up as you go along, um, stitch and mend approach uh, to the British constitution, which in recent years in particular has got us into so much trouble. The what, German did, uh, what do you think that the, the German constitution added on to the American document? Um, you suggest it's it's in some ways borrowed from that. Is there, a, is there a Jeffersonian flourish to it or is it more understated? There are Jeffersonian flourishes, but what is crucial about the German constitution is it allows for revisions. There are checks and balances. So you, uh, well, there are checks and balances across the German political landscape, whether it's the center to the regions or whether it's the fact that you cannot have a government without a set of coalitions and the importance of the um, constitutional court. But you can still change it so that you do not have the perennial problem that America has, which is dealing with a 21st century country with a, 20, with a set of 21st century dilemmas with an 18th century piece of work that it's almost impossible to change. So they built in flexibility. But you see that uh, going on uh, to um, unification, the Germans never thought that they would keep that existing constitution. They called it the basic law rather than a constitution because they saw it as temporary. So it was kind of like Berlin in a funny kind of way. It was a work in progress. Let's move on to 1968, John. Uh, of course, 1968 was uh, uh, the, the turning point, or the, perhaps the turning point that didn't turn like 1848. Uh, but what's so special about uh, 1968 in Germany? Why do you think it's so important in the history of the country? This was the moment, and there wasn't a single moment, but this was the period in which not only were Germans protesting as the French were, as uh, in a smaller relief, the Brits were against some of what they regarded as the sort of imperialist warmongering uh, decisions of the time, most particularly uh, the Vietnam War. But this was the moment of historical reckoning of one generation towards their antecedents. So to put it less pompously, Mummy, Daddy, what did you do during the war? Which was a set of questions that 
were not really asked and sure as anything were not answered in those early very traumatized uh, roll up your sleeves years of the late 40s was there a particular the figure i mean uh, you know a million times more about german cultural history than me when i when i think of writers who forced germans to come to terms with their past heinrich boll gunter grass was there a particular writer or thinker or public intellectual who led this uh who who led this if you like a kind of reconciliation with the past or a confrontation with the past in germany in 1968 well there is a short answer to that but it's not the answer you're looking for andrew i would say it was meryl streep oh my uh, but, god but I'll, I'll answer that in, uh, in, in a second. Um, you had actually different layers of the 1968 movement. So you had the intellectuals, and you've named uh, a couple of the writers there. You had the student movement, Rudy Dutschka and, mm. and others who became... Danny uh, the Red. What was yeah, Danny, Danny the Red's last name? Uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit. Right. Um, who was French and uh, Franco-German. And you also had uh, the group that then became uh, the Red Army Faction, uh, mm -hmm. the Baden-Meinhof group, which got itself involved in um, several years of very ostentatious and brutal terrorism going around, um, hijacking planes, uh, putting bombs, and even when they weren't bombing, such as the uh, Palestinians and the Munich Olympics, uh, they were certainly aiding, abetting, and supporting. So you had the, the grisly, unpalatable side of it, but you had across the spectrum to the peaceful side of it, but you had within families, you had people. This was the first time, and so this brings me to Meryl Streep. Um, the American series, uh, Holocaust, which uh, I remember in my very distant youth as being emblematic as being uh, important to my formative years, it absolutely transformed Germany. The viewing figures were astonishing, perhaps again in a way that Germans, particularly in that era, had to hide behind others. It took an American series, um, subtitled into German, to bring home to Germans in a sort of slightly schmaltzy Hollywood way, but still in a very effective way, the extent of the Holocaust. Of was that 68 though? Wasn't that later? When, when, it, was in, it was in the early 70s, but by this point, it was, it was meeting a latent um, growth in the population that started to interrogate each other and their parents and uh, friends and families about the war record that was happening already. You had the Nuremberg trials, you had the Eichmann trials, um, you had others, but not in such a tangible and visceral way as that period engendered. But what was really interesting, which might be a segue to the next period, 1989, is that you could actually say, actually, it was only really German unification that gave the country the confidence to say, right, this is the time when everything is out in the open we are confident enough to um open every uh nook and cranny and investigate the very worst sides of what we did and to do it in a way that wasn't just breastfeeding it was also asking very difficult questions there were some very controversial books around the 
rape of German women by invading Soviet soldiers. And some people said, that's disgusting. We can't talk about that. Um, we had books about Bomber Harris and the evisceration of Dresden and other German cities. Again, Germans saying, we can't talk about that. We're the guilty ones. We can't, we can't do that. You had a, a maturing of society that really got going, I would say, uh, at the time of unification and is still very strong to this day. John, I know you, what, one of your first jobs as a young journalist was covering uh, the 89 events. Actually, I think you were, you were covering them from the East German side. Was that the year that I know you're, you have some German background in, in terms of your family, half Jewish, half, uh, uh, so they, they came from, uh, from, from Bratislava, uh, sort of casualties in many ways, victims of the war. Was, six, uh, was it 89 the year you came to terms with Germany? It's a really, really, it's a really good question. I um, lived and worked previously, just a little bit before that in Germany, in, in the, um, uh, the small town capital that was Bonn mm. uh, from six, a small town in Germany, that famous small town in Germany, 86 to 88. I was there and my dad, who, as you say, fled Bratislava by the skin of his teeth and that of his two parents. As a Jew, was he was his first language German? Uh, it was. He never spoke a word of it with us. Um, he always spoke very accented English. Um, and you, I never quite, I think, uh, got lost his middle Europa, his sort of uh, German speaking Central European roots. He spent many years, 15 years um, in, the, in the British colony that as it then was of Singapore, uh, where he met my Protestant from Chatham in Kent mother. So it's a real sort of mixed uh, set of inheritances that I adopted. When he came to visit me in Bonn, I remember so well, it's one of the most vivid memories I have of him. He, his hands, he was trying very hard to look, to be cool and relaxed, but his hands were shaking. And it wasn't helped by when he arrived at Cologne Bonn Airport, Lufthansa managed to lose his bags. Um, so that wasn't a great start to his venture, but he saw Germany as, uh, he didn't have any bad experiences, nor was he rose-tinted about it, but he felt that he had not expunged, but he had dealt with that, and he was very grateful for uh, visiting in that period. So that let's was the end. Uh, let's go back to 89, John. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you were there when Carrie-Anne conducted the Beethoven Ninth in front of the wall. Yeah. Is, was that narrative true, this, this, this journey from unfreedom to triumph and liberty? Is that what 89 is all about? It's what certainly that mini period was all about. I was based in the East. Um, the one thing I would always say is that anybody who um, likes to parcel up their history in neat chunks and talk about the fall of the wall as being inevitable, the GDR disintegrating under the weight of its own economic malaise and political contradictions, that's all nonsense. It could have gone very, very differently. I was in the Gethsemane Church in East Berlin, a month before when the time when the war came down, there were 
FOPOs, that's the People's Police of the GDR, um, surrounding the church with searchlights, with dogs. Egon Krentz, who was the, uh, the power in the land, had just been to China to admire the brilliant way in which they had massacred people in Tiananmen Square. There was no sense that this would, this would inevitably happen or that it would happen peacefully. So and there's again, no, uh, yeah, I know you've, you've debated Fukuyama in the past. Um, the 89 didn't, of course, represent the end of history. And in many ways, you suggest in your book, it represented the beginning. Well, it literally did represent the beginning of a united German history. What does 89 mean in that context? You, you, Recently, you argue in the book that it, that, that, that compared to many reunifications, the unification or the reunification of Germany was pretty successful in terms of the incorporation of the East into the West. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I mean, just by way of a quick tangent, I went on uh, the, the day after unification at the end of 1990, I went to Moscow where I was for four years to see the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of, of Soviet communism. This was absolutely, we were all imbued in, as Fukuyama was, with that sense of free markets and liberal democracy coming together and to become this great uh, now impenetrable force. What Just going back to, and what I've seen with Russia, and I keep up with Russia very well, as I do with Germany, is I, I'm absolutely sub consumed by disappointment and frustration and no little fury about what's happened in Russia. Germany was a remarkable success story. And yes, there are many reasons and there are many points to criticize in the process of unification, both 89 to 90, and then subsequently to the, the point of unification in 1990. And we could go through them if you want. But notwithstanding that, I defy anybody to come up with a country or a political system that could have done what Germany did in that remarkable period with no rule book, with so little damage and so much success. Yeah, I agree. I think Americans can certainly learn from the reunification of Germany, given that America doesn't seem to have recovered from its civil war, which was many more years ago. Uh, let, let's move on to the next key year in your mind. Uh, uh, 2015. What happened in 2015? I'm giving it away for people who are watching this thing. Uh, why was that the last key year in your, your four-year narrative of, of modern Germany, John? So we have the enormous refugee um, influx from Syria, the Middle East, North Africa. We remember those pictures of the dead little boy uh, washed up on the beach in Turkey, people trying to get from Turkey to Greece, um, all the way uh, up through the Balkans into Hungary and into Austria. The further they went, this caravan of the most destitute, the greater the restrictions were put on them, police dogs, water cannon, um, barbed wire. They were literally knocking at Germany's border and Angela Merkel had a desperately difficult choice. And as she said afterwards, what did you expect me to do as a German to build camps? She had no choice. But she made the choice, in my view, with remarkable courage to take in more than a million people 
when a country like Britain, when a few Iranians turn up on a dinghy, Sajid Javid, the then Home Secretary, declaring it almost a state of emergency. This was a country that took in so many people. It's not a particularly, or it wasn't until this point, a particularly multicultural country. There were so many challenges to Germany, and it led to uh, increase in support for the AFD, and we can come to all of that. But again, I put it in a similar context to unification in 89-90. I defy anybody to uh, find an example of the absorption, not just of different people, but different people who almost uh, exclusively were desperately poor um, and traumatized to absorb them again with so little damage. John, I'm I'm thinking about your book and your argument about Germany. Let you 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 come at it. I think in many ways from your disappointment with what's happened in the UK. I'm doing it in terms of the US. We've had a series of shows about the crisis of democracy in America, the doing away of unions and any kind of intermediary institutions between the individual. And then the, the looting of the state, very brilliantly articulated by uh, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, one of the big books of this, uh, this period uh, in the United States. Standing back in terms of the German achievement, could you argue that the real German achievement is to maintain the great society model that was in many ways pioneered in the UK and the US but which under Reagan and Thatcher, we chose to leave and embrace a, a radical free market neo, neoliberal model. Is the German model that it stayed in the past, stayed in the 1940s, 50s and 60s? Yeah, I wouldn't say 50s and 60s, and nor do I think anybody should ever see the solutions for the present um, through nostalgia for the past, um, therein lies actually some quite uh, difficult uh, paths towards populism and nationalism. You have to deal with things as they are now. But I think partly a very specifically German issue of atonement for the past and a requirement that is extraordinarily maintained, sometimes to the point of uh, just being too much, of ultra seriousness about politics and history and legacy. They simply cannot understand how any self-respecting group of people, Americans, Brits or others, um, could not take their politics seriously or who could vote for or create the conditions that would lead to people who are not serious and not responsible taking power. It's something that they just simply cannot get inside inside their own heads. Uh, John, the 2016 uh, primaries, there was a famous interaction between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders about Denmark. Uh, Sanders was arguing, well, we just need to be more like Denmark with some sort of one of their social policies. And Hillary said something like, well, Bernie, that's all very well. I love Denmark, but we can't all be Denmark. Why doesn't Germany ever get brought up in these debates? Um, why why isn't, isn't there someone, whether it's Bernie Sanders or, uh, or perhaps even Joe Biden 
or the new leader of the, the, the British Labour Party, why aren't we embracing the German model? Is it because of German ambivalence about their own system or is it because we're still, still suffering from the legacy of the Second World War and Nazism? Well, the reception my book has had, particularly in the UK, but in the US and in other countries, Australia, it sold well and, and various places, has at the risk of self-aggrandizing been remarkable. And I think actually it's either a reflection on or hopefully in a small way, a contributor to a re-examination and a recalibration, even if people do it through gritted teeth. Um, that sense of seeing Germany, not as a model, because nobody is a model, but seeing Germany as um, being a country that is that contains so many facets that we should seek to emulate, that we should take seriously, and we should respect. After all, Germany does that to others too, so we should... Given who does Germany's, Germany do? who, does Germ who, who does Germany want to be when it grows up? I mean, Germany's, it's, it's a love-hate, but it's a love-hate based on love, if that's not contradictory, towards the United States is remarkable. Just as, I mean, I'll come to Trump in a second, but John F. Kennedy, Bill Clinton to a large degree, Barack Obama very much so, Germans absolutely would go weak at the knees at uh, at these people and see in them a combination of the American dream of charisma, which they don't see very much in their politicians, and they don't prize very much in their politicians either, as very much a country to be envied, which is when America goes off the rails, which uh, compared to most recently, in yeah, small we, measure, we have the images of um, yeah. going off the but, road. You know, with, but also with George Bush and the Iraq war and the fallout that that had in, and the German Chancellor at the time, Gerhard Schroeder, um, very controversially refusing to go uh, to war. Uh, the Americans just couldn't understand that. They could take it from the French, but they absolutely couldn't understand that from the Germans. So you get to Donald Trump. Angela Merkel tried everything um, to understand him to get on the right side of him. Within seconds, he was being egregiously insulting towards her, and he ended just as he began. He did that all the way through to her. She has, as one uh, of her advisors said to me, total impulse control. And she does. She says very, very little, but you can read everything in her body language. Well, her and body language, uh, we're looking at her back, where apparently... Europe after Merkel. I, I don't think we got time to get to that, John. I'm interested in your conclusion. You say Germany is Europe's best hope in this era of nationalism, anti-enlightenment and fear. But this hope um, seems to me, I had Peter Gumbel, another British journalist, disappointed with the UK, embracing the German model on the show recently. I'm sure you know him. He writes from Paris. Is your hope sort of really just disappointment about Britain, because the, there isn't a German model. Nothing really changes in Germany. Um, Kurt Anderson wrote a wonderful essay 10 years ago about how nothing's changed except technology. Germany isn't innovating. Germany has a model that's very hard to copy. So really, it is 
our hope in Germany just a, a, in some ways a kind of white flag because Britain and America, for better or worse, can't become like Germany. Isn't that well? Obviously, well, obviously, America has hopefully not temporarily, but we'll see, moved on from Trump, although 71 million Americans continue to vote for him. 75, actually. 75. So apologies. And I think one of the problems exactly. with all these arguments is you're just writing off, you know, 75 million Americans suggesting that they're uh, all no, civilized so, or undemocratic. No, or I'm not saying that at all. I am saying and uh, I'm absolutely not saying that, nor have I said that the people who voted for Brexit are X, Y or Z. What I am saying in these movements of 2015 to 2020 is that the conditions of political, constitutional atrification that uh, caused the Trump Brexit phenomena alongside um, uh, stark inequalities and also the retreat of the state from pretty much all areas of public life have led to a situation in which both Trump and Brexit were not causes of anything. They were manifestations of that. Now, Germany has many, many problems. We haven't had time to go into many of them, and I'm not starry-eyed about the country, but it has a political societal underpinning that we should envy. And it is not some dinosaur. Yeah, it's been slow on certain things. The tech sector in Berlin is hotting up nicely. The SME culture is getting there. Their level of engineering and science um, and investment in R&D is great. They do not focus their wealth on one or two cities. And there is a far greater sense of social cohesion. That, in my book, is a pretty good model. Well, and in my book, or I think John's, uh, John's book, Why the Germans Do It Better, is much needed, provocative, but fair, a must read, I think, in an age where we're looking for other models outside the UK and the US. John, congratulations on the big success of the book. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times? You're stuck in London, I'm in Berkeley, California. Anything else in addition to your book? Well, I mean, this is slightly... I love the subtitle of the book, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. What other, what other books can make us more grown-up, John, in these infantile oh, times? Well, there are so many. I mean, Michael Sandel's recent stuff. Is, yeah, we had Sandel is, on the show, actually. He's very yeah, grown-up. No, he's very grown-up. Uh, there's some great fiction that I've been reading. This is a very slightly sort of, for American audiences, this might sort of slightly pass them by, but this is a, um, a great book by a British politician who uh, was in one of Tony Blair's governments. Um, and this is a guy who was foreign secretary in the first post-war um, government. And I cite this because our clown prime minister, Boris Johnson, likes to call himself or allude to the fact that he is going to be uh, the Conservatives' new Winston Churchill. According to the author, <laughs> excuse me, Andrew Adonis, this man, Ernest Bevan, was Labour's real Churchill. Well, uh, John Kampfner, I think we need a, a new Ernest Bevan, and I hope uh, I know you're writing a new book. Maybe you'll you'll offer in your new book some um, some uh, some pointers to a better future. You've already talked about Germany. I want to thank you 
Real honor to have you on the show. Congratulations on the huge success of this bestseller, Why the Germans Do It Better, and keep well in these strange times. Thank you again. Thank you, Andrew, and to you and to uh, people watching this. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.